So when I left Seattle two weeks ago, um, only having arrived late last night, I had not written a sermon for this morning, and yet here I am on the schedule to preach. So what I'm going to be sharing with you is some reflections from the last week in particular, snapshots from my experience with Mennonite Church USA, our gathering in Orlando. Mennonite Church USA is our national church, the denomination to which we belong. Some of you may have been following some on social media, more or less. Um, So I'm going to share some reflections. It's all still very fresh. Um, What I'm going to do, and I decided this even before Adam shared how short the service was last week. So this is not Adam's fault. This is my fault. I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes because I don't have anything written, um, and I could go on a long time. Um, And when the old car horn sounds, which is what my timer is set to, um, I will shift to wrapping up with some of my concluding remarks. So I'm going to start by sharing a couple of highlights from the week. One of them was, as a delegate body, passing overwhelmingly the Israel-Palestine resolution. It was a resolution that in another form had come to the delegate body two years ago, and many were dismayed that we were unable to pass it. The delegates voted to table it for two years. It felt like a bit of a failure two years ago, I think, to some who had put a lot of time and energy into it. And yet, the last two weeks, sorry, the last two years have been received and embraced as a gift by the church, a gift of being able to revisit it, to send it out for more reflections and edits so that it was refined, a gift of an opportunity to, um, they hosted several webinars uh, that those of us who were coming as delegates were able to watch. Um, And so uh, there was this growing and building of a consensus over those two years, which ended up, I think, making a better resolution in many ways. We were really gifted in Orlando to be able to welcome, once again, Palestinian um, pastor and professor Alex Awad, and then also Rabbi Brant Rosen um, from the Chicago area. The two of them uh, were on stage together to bear witness from their respective perspectives and communities. Um, And in fact, Rabbi Brant Rosen read a statement that the Council of Rabbis um, had written together affirming us and are moving toward affirming this resolution. It was very beautiful. They learned from their mistakes two years ago and brought up a stage full of people who had been on the come and see tours to Israel-Palestine who were able to tell stories and bear witness to what they had seen and heard on the ground. Um, And so that was a joyous experience to be able to hear so many affirmations from the delegate body and to really feel as though we had been building consensus for a couple of years. Another highlight was um, on late Tuesday night, um, Ted and company, um, who we've hosted here before, Ted Swartz, they produced a play called Discovery, A Comic Lament. 
It's a play that was written by Allison Brookins, a recent graduate of Anabaptist Midnight Biblical Seminary. She has just been called as the next pastor for Chicago Community Mennonite Church, which is the church that I had the pleasure of serving for 10 years. Uh, so that's a fun connection. But she was the playwright, and then Ted and Michelle Milne um, acted in this, and it was indeed that, a comic lament reflecting on the doctrine of discovery, something that we, of course, have engaged at various times in our journey as a congregation. Um, and for those of you who don't know, we have these lovely panels on our back wall uh, that describe the doctrine of discovery. Uh, that was a powerful experience to laugh and cry in large community um, about our complicity in that history, to be able to tell the truth of the hard parts of our history in an honest um, and engaging way. Uh, side note, Ted approached me the next day to say, do you think your husband John could play my part in that play? So he's going to be out of the country for four months uh, next year, and Michelle Milne is moving to Portland. And so I don't know if it will happen, but they're, they're already starting talks, so there may be this possibility of John and Michelle touring this show for um, several months next year. And I hope that we will choose to invest some congregational resources in hosting um, that important work here. Uh, a couple other highlights. The inclusive worship service is always a highlight. This was the first year that it was uh, listed in the main booklet and hosted in the main space. And the representatives from Pink Menno and the Inclusive Mennonite Pastors Leadership Team and Brethren Mennonite Council for LGBT Interests that have planned that service historically told the denomination, that's great if you want us on your official books. We aren't going to be limited. We won't abide by any rules that you impose on us. And the denomination said, yes, you are welcome as you are, and we were welcome as we were. Um, it was really important since we were meeting in Orlando, and it's just one year after the shootings of uh, beloved Latinx siblings at the Pulse nightclub there in Orlando, to be able to name each of those 49 persons by name. And um, we came up and wrote their names on a on a poster board, and then got to hear a powerful and prophetic word from Regina Shans Stoltzfus. Um, Pink Menno hymn sings are always a highlight. Just such a joy to gather with people in a circle. A couple of specific highlights was uh, the one time I actually was late getting there, so I was still somewhere down the hallway, and all of a sudden I heard 606. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, our grand doxology, and came around the corner, and we, were, we always met up on the third floor in this large atrium in this huge convention center, and the Pink Menno hymn singers were all gathered singing it over the balcony to all those who were coming, and so I, I began singing even before I came around the corner on the first floor and then made my way up escalators. Um, and then a particularly rousing, um, my soul cries out uh, after the Future Church Summit um, wrapped up. I'll tell you a little bit more about the Future Church Summit. Um, another highlight was getting to share that Future Church Summit, which was this very intensive process of gathering around 97 tables. It was a, a, a team had put together this whole process. They've been meeting for months 
to work at having a more representative body present than our delegate body sometimes um, reflects. Uh, we did good, long, hard, inhumane schedule, but really good work together. Um, and I got to do that alongside Jennifer Delante, who was our second congregational uh, representative delegate to that body, and Thalia Neufeld. Thalia, who I had nominated, we got a call that there was, they were going to be doing the Step Up program, so for youth in the church to really participate in the work of the church. Um, and not just hear about it later as they're doing their fun youth stuff off to the side somewhere. And so I had nominated Thalia, and she got selected and was sent by Pacific Northwest Mennonite Conference to participate. And so what fun during all of our breaks to have Thalia bouncing over to my table. Um, and I was like, okay, I need to go to the bathroom, then I need to fill up my water bottle, and Thalia just came along for the ride. And so it was really great to have her body and spirit and voice and presence in the work of the church. Um, and what joy for this congregation to have raised her up and sent her to represent us. Other highlights, <clears throat> at the start of the Future Church Summit, the very first thing we did was we took a look back so where are we coming from? Um, and one of the ways we did that is there was this timeline. It was on, on large-scale poster boards, timeline of the Mennonite church, starting way back in the, 16, or the 1500s and even before people were writing and things before. And people could write. So it was in the exhibition hall for the whole week. And at the start of the Future Church Summit, they brought it in as it was, and they had several people they had invited to help interpret that they, they'd gotten together the night before to look at what was written in and to reflect on what they were noticing about the timeline and our history. And there was a, a particularly poignant moment where John D. Roth, who is a professor of history at Goshen College, was reflecting on the era of Mennonite institutionalization. So when many of our institutions were being formed, it was the post-Civil War era, and so he reflected on how there was this surge in forming institutions together and how that was a really important time in terms of the preserving of Mennonite identity, the formation of Mennonite identity, the starting of many agencies that are still with us in some form today, have lived a very long time. It was both that and also, he noted, was a time when uh, we established whiteness as the norm for this denomination, a legacy that continues today. And so for him to so very clearly name that whiteness was institutionalized along with all these other very good intentioned things was an important naming publicly. Um, and then uh, Erica Littlewolf, who is an indigenous Mennonite woman, was one of the other interpreters of the history. And so she shared the experience of when John said this the, the night before. So the reporting on what had happened the night before. So John had shared this thing, which he then shared with us again in the morning. And Erica said, when John said that, I had this aha moment because of course she's seeing that history from the indigenous perspective. From the moment at which Mennonite institutions and mission agencies began to come into indigenous communities and perform mission on them. Um, 
she reflected on how assimilation was really the path to welcome and belonging in the Mennonite church for many Native communities in some softer forms and then in some cases some very rigid forms. Um, she also reflected on the experience of growing up in indigenous community that had been um, uh, that Mennonites had come into that there were services made available to her and her community, um, but limited. She said, for example, that she never knew there were Mennonite colleges. She knew there was a mission agency that was there to provide mission to her and her community, and she didn't know there was a college that she could go to. So it was a very important time, that timeline uh, exercise of really telling some of the true histories, some of the things that we have celebrated about ourselves and continue to celebrate ourselves, and some of the things that have been hidden and needed to be confessed and named. Um, in that exercise, um, even while there were Native and African American threads that were explicitly named as part of that history, there were some other communities' threads that were not named, and one really there were lots of glaring absences, but one really glaring absence was the Latinx Mennonite narrative. Um, there was apparently um, uh, someone who was going to represent that perspective who pulled out last minute, but then they didn't tell us that, so that wasn't framed up front. And so there were people in the crowd, part of our body, who felt their story was really not being told and was glaringly absent. Um, and we got to hear then publicly from Sandra Mont Montez Martinez from Iglesia Mennonite Hispana. She said, we are here, we are not invisible, we are pastors, we are teachers, we are CEOs, we are leaders, we are here. That was an important naming. <clears throat> and as John D. Roth had said earlier in that exercise, he said, every telling of history is an argument. And what he didn't say, but what I think we all knew, or what most of us know, is that also most histories are told from the perspective of the victors or the powerful. Um, but what a great uh, experience, even with its mistakes, and then to have its mistakes named aloud, um, to have that part of that history told. Now these are just going to be some snippets, so maybe you listen to this sort of uh, Lectio style, what stands out to you. Maribel Hinhosa preached for us during one of our worship services. She said, the extent to which we show hospitality reveals the depth of our spirituality. She also said, I'm not here to tell you who your neighbor is. I think you already know. She also ended with William Sloan Coffin's very powerful benediction, which I, I make close with. I think it's one that will sound familiar to you. Sarah Thompson, um, who's our, the executive director of Christian Peacemaker Teams, at one point said, God is with a community that innovates over time and does not forget its history. Innovates over time, does not forget. Innovates over time, does not forget. Luke Miller from the stage during our future church summit um, one of the questions that we reflected on in that future church summit was, I'm going to read it to you so that the framing is exactly right. What are the implications of having diverse identities within our church? 
And one of the things I brought to my table conversation was that negative framing, like diversity has implications. And there was a living with, there was a, sort of a follow-up question that says, how do we live with our difference? So it was all this sort of like, there's diversities, what are we gonna do about it? There's all these implications, we got it. It's like, oh, oh wow, that went fast. Okay, that was 15 minutes. I'll start to, I'll start to wrap up. Um, should I set another timer? Do we need another? <laughs> um, so, okay, so I'll just go what Luke said with no further introduction. Luke went to the stage and said diversity was created by God and is present at the very beginning of our story from Genesis chapter 1 on. So why did God create diversity? And how is it a gift to us? And specifically, he said, why did God create some of us queer? And how are we a gift to the church? Matthew Yoder, who used to be the pastor out in Menno Mennonite, he's now in Ohio in response to that same implications of diversity question. I love people who can succinctly say something. You can tell I don't do it as well. He got up and what he said was, what are the implications of our diversity? We more fully reflect the image of God. Full stop. Okay, I have to do one more thing before my wrap up. And that is Drew Hart. Drew Hart, who is um, a theologian, author, teacher, um, educa yeah, educator, that's teacher, um, in the Mennonite church. He's a black man. He claims the label, I think he actually coined the label, Anna Blacktivist. Uh, so Anabaptist, black activist, all those things in there. Um, he was reflecting, so he preached the very final worship service after everything had wrapped up and we were being sent back to our communities. Which, by the way, I plan to start by saying it's so good to be home. So I'll just say that now. It is so good to be home. Um, he reflected on listening to Rachel Held Evans preach. So she was like our celebrity speaker that was invited. She's a white woman, Christian, Episcopalian blogger, author, has quite a following. She's really, she's really quite fabulous. Uh, and she's got this like southern accent that just makes everything she says come out sounding just so charming. She's got this way about her. She's just so charming. She's like, maybe the church just needs to die, y'all. We just need to die to our ways of domination. Because I think Christianity has a little something to say about death. Maybe Jesus needs to resurrect us into something. She can just say it all, like, in a way that just makes it sound so charming and easy. <laughs> she also, like many outside speakers that are often invited into Mennonite spaces like that, really had a lot of lovely things to say about us Mennonites. People from the outside, they love to come in. We're a, we're a salt of the earth people. We've been doing peacemaking. She had this whole analogy of where different denominations are. In, like in, the, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Uh, so she talked about the various rooms, like the Presbyterians at the table. It, it, the Mennonites are in the garden, she said. And isn't that wonderful? Because the gospel often smells like dirt. And so it was this really beautiful analogy. But anyway, so she had this, these lovely things to say about us Mennonites. Um, reflecting back to us, I think, the best 
of who we are, who we have been and who we are. So it wasn't untrue, um, but it was a bit lopsided. And Drew said he was sitting in the back listening to Rachel Held Evans hold us men in such high esteem while holding the intimate knowledge that we are just as messy, just as flawed, just as sinful as any other little corner of Christ's church. That we are not free of racism, sexism, heteronormativity. And so for him to name these things as we were coming home again was really powerful. Love is a verb was our theme for the week. Um, and so Drew illuminated for us the ways in which our love in the church is often diseased and disordered. Um, he said very frankly, and, and this was convicting. Oh, I'm going really long. This was convicting. He said, I do not look to Mennonites for a model of how to love on the ground. I look to my own black community and to my family specifically, is what he said. And then he told the story of a, of a cousin who, um, um, whose parents were shot by an invader to their home, and his cousin was actually left to die and miraculously lived. And as she grew older, she, um, not an Anabaptist at all, um, but went um, to meet the shooter of her parents in order to speak a word of love and forgiveness. He said, I, when I need a model of what it looks like to love in action, or, and he repeated for us Cornell West's famous um, understanding of that justice is what love looks like in public. So that's what he was in, in, encouraging us to see. What does love look like in public? And he looks to his black community and his family for models on how best to do that. <clears throat> and now... Some of you may have read or will read some dismay about how things ended. Um, that I, I will have more to say about this at some point. Or maybe I'll have less and more concise things to say <laughs> at some point. Um, but the good, hard work of the Future Church Summit um, was wrapped up. That's where we spent most of our time. We spent very little time in delegate session. We had a little delegate session at the beginning and then we did Future Church Summit, um, really powerful, vulnerable, uh, truth-telling things happened in that time, around 97 tables that included all of the delegates, but also included some underrepresented groups who typically aren't as visible in our delegate body. Um, and then the delegates in a short session at the end, which was supposed to be sort of perfunctory, there was this resolution that had been tested with the executive board, with the constituency leaders council, with the design team of the future church. So all these people had looked at it and we were just supposed to vote on it and they weren't even gonna have an open mic time. And then they decided to have the open mic time. And then, so here's the analysis piece, or no, it's just observation. Here's the observation piece. Eight older white men um, from a few consolidated conferences got up to express their dismay about how unrepresentative that body had been and thinking that the resolution shouldn't actually provide direction. So th the language was providing direction for our national church going forward. And so the language got watered down. There was sort of a failure of Robert's rules and process. It all just rushed. It was very confusing. 
um, an executive board member on the resolutions committee proposed a change to the resolution based on just these eight comments that came um, without going through the process. Like the process had been that if you wanted a, a, to propose an amendment, somebody from the delegate body had to go to the re resolutions committee. They initiated this change and then we were rushing through and then we were voting and then it was over and it was passed. So sort of watered down language that doesn't quite give the same mandate to our executive board to really take seriously and enact this uh, eight-page summary document that we created through our work together. Um, so that was very disappointing for many. Um, and so I feel grateful to be home in this community with you all. Because I haven't done exegesis, I'm especially grateful to Sheldon for giving us a little bit of context for the gospel that we heard this morning. One of the things I love about this gospel is that Jesus is saying that God hid things. Jesus in his prayer is saying that God hid things from the learned, the intelligent, and the clever, and chose instead to reveal those to the littlest children. And it seems serendipitous um, in lots of ways. As I think about my last Sunday with y'all before I left two weeks ago, which was of course Pride Sunday, where our communion servers were queer and straight, woman and man, where our anointers, the ones offering anointing of blessing and healing to each one of us, were two young girls, anointing all of us in our many diversities here. And as I reflect on coming back today to Sarah and Claire leading worship together and sharing of their giftedness across the age span. I'm grateful to be in a congregation that knows that the radically hospitable way of Jesus isn't just for the future church, but is proclaimed and is lived and is embodied here in the present church. So, whatever our executive board does or does not do in the wake of this, um, however the broken pieces that are sort of left, as they seem to always kind of be left after we get together, so many beautiful good things happened, I want to rem remember that, and broken pieces kind of left on the floor, and all of that messiness, may we continue here in this body. <laughs> proclaim and live and embody that radically hospitable way of Jesus in our present church. May it be so.